when we talk about the Reformation, we think of the beautiful symbols like this and beautiful messages, but we also maybe reflect on some important events we celebrated at this time of the year because this is the anniversary time when Luther nailed those 95 statements to that castle door in Germany to start the discussion, to point out things that were wrong and needed to be corrected. Now, while we think of an important event like that, there were other important events in Luther's life and in the Reformation that have significance for us today, too. And here's one that happened just two years before Luther died in 1544. The first Lutheran church was dedicated. Now, you might be thinking, but by this time, the Reformation had already been going, you know, 20, 25 years or so. This was the first church? This is the first Lutheran church that was constructed. All the others were Catholic churches that converted over. Now, the reason I'm talking about this is because when we look at some of the details of that church, and this isn't the whole church, by the way. This is the castle, and the church was just part of that castle. But when we look at the details of that church, we can see how Luther had his hand in its design to bring out those important messages of the Reformation. For example, at the very beginning, at the entrance of that church, around those humble doors, there is a beautiful stone carving depicting the suffering of Christ and above it, his entombment. It just is a reminder to the worshipers as they come, this is on Christ alone. And when you go inside, you see a big open space for the worshipers to sand, and now, of course, they would sit. But we also notice that often the right side of each picture, there is a a particular structure hanging from the walls, from the second story, so to speak. That was the pulpit. That's where the preacher would give his message, high up, and people would look up there. Now, this particular uh, pulpit was designed by his artist and had three particular pictures in there, each with a message. You can see then how high it was up in the, on the uh, wall there for people to look up to hear. That first picture in the middle was of the boy Jesus, 12 years old, when he is in the temple and he is teaching the teachers. And in that picture, he is pointing to the scriptures. In the picture on the left, it was the scene of Jesus both pointing out the sin of the woman caught in adultery, but also forgiving her. And the picture on the right was Jesus driving out the money changers from the temple. Now, why those three scenes from Jesus' life? Because they depict three important messages that we have from the scriptures that are the foundation for our faith. First, that one of Jesus' teaching in the temple, it reminds us of scripture alone. Jesus showing forgiveness to that woman, it reminds us of grace alone to bring forgiveness. And Jesus driving out the money changers, it's not the work we do, it's not anything we do, but purely by faith alone in Jesus that we are saved. Now, while we may recall some events in the Reformation that are important, like Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses, or his debate with Johann Eck, the Catholic scholar, 
or in 1521 when he's put on trial before the emperor and accused of being a heretic, but he makes his famous stand that his conscience is bound to the word of God. He can do no other. Here I stand. Or the time he spent translating the scriptures from the Greek into the German language so the people could read God's word for themselves. All important events. But perhaps the crowning event of the Reformation was when this church was dedicated and Luther preached. He gave this message. It is the intention of this building that nothing else shall happen inside it except that our dear Lord shall speak to us through his holy word. And we, in turn, talk to him through prayer and praise. What he's reminding us of is, I think, reflective of what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, when he said, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. With that, Paul was reminding us that the church is not a set of walls. The church is you. And God has put us together to rise up to his glory. We have been talking this month about the foundations of our faith. Paul reminded us our foundation is the scripture, and from that we learn five important truths. We've looked at them all month long. It's by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, by scripture alone, and today we are reminded all of this rises up together for the glory of God alone. Now, when you think of people working together or being together for a particular cause, you might think of them not just as a group, but as a team, that they're all working together to accomplish certain things. Of course, in some teams, some individuals stand out more than others. You can think of Stephen Curry standing out as a great basketball player, or people from certain football teams standing out, and, uh, oh, it's a Cowboys player, how about that? Uh, and, and, of course, the news will report, you know, who got all the touchdowns or all the points and what their statistics were. And with all of that, as just as with business, like with Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, what you see is that people have contributed something to the success of the organization. So we all have a part to play, we'd say, huh? But all of that goes away when you talk about salvation. Because as the scriptures tell us, it's God alone who saves. At the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians, Paul highlights those four important foundations and caps it off with one more as he repeats four times, all of this is to the praise of God. Listen how he starts his letter. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And as he goes on and tells us God has lavished us with his grace, we get this important point that it's because of God's grace that we are blessed. Now, I know that in about a month we'll be celebrating Thanksgiving, a time for us to reflect on all the blessings that we have. And we'll think about all those wonderful blessings that we have from God, and, and sometimes people will maybe interject a little bit about the things that they themselves have brought about in their life, you know, what they've accomplished, what they've done. But we are reminded that all of those things are blessings from God. Now, sometimes people are going to look at the abundance of their blessings, and other people will look at maybe the poverty of their blessings. But whether you have a lot or whether you have a little, the Apostle Paul said, we have all been richly blessed through grace and been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Wow, think of that. God has given to us every spiritual blessing. Now, we're going to highlight some of those blessings this morning, but I also reflected on this list that the Apostle Paul gave in the book of Galatians. He called it the fruit of the Spirit. Here's what comes into your life when, when the Spirit is in your life. Love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wonderful blessings that God has given us, and many, many more. Every spiritual blessing is ours because of God's grace. Now, Paul goes on and he lists even more. He says, For God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, now get this, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. To the praise of his glorious grace, we thank God because we have been chosen for salvation because of grace. Now, when you think about various athletic teams, or even about the teams the kids pick up on the playground. People are chosen for their teams because of their talent, because of their skills and what they can contribute to the team. We do similar things. When we go to a store, we're going to buy something that we know works and that fits our particular needs. So we choose based on the basis of what is that going to do for me? But that's not how God chose us for salvation. He didn't say, I need you. He didn't say, I see this good in you, and so you are going to be chosen. No, what God saw in us was simply Christ. On the basis of Christ, he has chosen us for salvation. That's all, pure and simple. That undeserved, unconditional grace that sets no standards that have to be met. It's purely God's love for us. Now, Paul's going to go on and he's going to tell us, look how God's grace is working in your life. He writes, In him we were also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In other words, what he's telling us is, not only did God choose you, but he also set your life on a course to go to heaven. Now, sometimes people wonder, I wonder what God's will is for me. What's God's plan for my life? And by that, they mean, you know, what kind of career does he want me to have? Where am I going to go to work? What people is he going to bring into my life? What's my family going to be like? What's my health going to be like? Um, What will retirement be like? How long will I live? (laughs) That's usually what people mean when they think about, what is God's will for my life? Now, God certainly has that all planned out, but he doesn't reveal those details in advance to us. He leads us into those blessings, and sometimes he even lets us choose those blessings. But there is one thing that God for certain has revealed that he wants for us, and that is for us to go to heaven, to live eternally. So you can look at the experiences you've had, the events of your life, the people that are in your life, a family and friends, people at church, and look to see how God's grace was at work to set you on course to bring you to heaven. Sometimes people will look back and reflect on their life, and they'll maybe say, you know, I've had a pretty good life. Or they might look back and see times where there's been difficulties and hardships, and they'll say, you know what, I wish my life had been better. But here's what we need to do. Always see God's hand at work, in the good and in the bad. And always see that his grace has been working in our life to bless us, to bring us to him, to finally take us to heaven. That's why with Paul and with Luther then, we can say this. Let's say it together. To God alone be the glory because his grace blesses us. Now knowing that, could you imagine a Christian saying, I hate God? I've known people who have said that, and usually because of the trouble that they've had in their life. They can't understand How can a loving God let this happen? And so they might say it then, I I hate God. Did you know that Luther said that? I hate God. When he was taught that because of the abundance of his sin, he could not get to heaven, and that he needed to work and improve his life so that he could show God he was worthy of heaven, and yet when he saw he never could, He said, I hate God, because he only saw him as a demanding, mean judge. But as Luther read the scriptures, he began to see Christ in a different light. Not as an angry, condemning judge, but rather as a God who saves him. And that's exactly what Paul so beautifully said in verse 7 of our text. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
Luther saw his sins. He saw his many sins. He saw the sins of the people around him. He saw a whole world that was filled with sin. And so he exclaimed, we are nothing but lost and condemned creatures. But Jesus shed his blood for us. And through that we have the forgiveness of our sins. We've been redeemed. We've been purchased back to be God's. And we're owned by him. Luther knew there was a curse against sin. But that curse was removed from us. So that anything that kept us away from God was taken away and put on Christ instead. You see, Luther saw through all the stuff he had been taught. That it wasn't the quantity of his sins that was keeping him from God. That it was just sin itself. And that was at the very root of our existence. But what he also saw was that there was a righteousness that God demanded that he also gave. He called it an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of us that came from Christ and was given us by faith. It's by that righteousness of Christ that God now declares we are righteous, we are innocent, and thus we are saved. Have you ever felt estranged from somebody, you know, a broken relationship, and, and maybe you've tried to do some things to repair that relationship, and maybe you've worked at it and worked at it, and maybe it just didn't take. And finally, maybe you just threw up your arms and said, I guess that's it, it's over, and I'm going to move on. Wouldn't it be awful to think of your relationship with God that way? To think no matter how hard you tried, you still fail and you can't be right with God? Wouldn't that be awful? But that's not the way it is. We are right with God. We have been united with him again. What we have broken, Christ has repaired. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that God now declares, I will remember your sins no more. And though we have run away, Christ has returned us back to God. And so we join with Luther and say, let's say it, to God alone be the glory because Christ saved us. But how do we know that? How can we be sure? The Apostle Paul reminds us it's because of the faith that God gave us. Listen how he explains it. With all wisdom and understanding, he, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, get this, might be for the praise 
of His glory. What he is reminding us of simply is that that faith that God gave us is what enables us to know and trust his will because we wouldn't know it on our own. Human beings have this desire inside of them to want to live forever. And so they look for ways in which that they can have that, that feeling of confidence that they will live forever but they don't always listen to God's ways. Uh, yesterday morning, I had a couple of Jehovah Witnesses show up at my front door. And I'm always amazed that they come over to my house right next to the church. And, and this guy even amazed me even more because he said, now we know that you're the pastor of the church over there, right? I'm on their books. <laughs> I said, yeah. And he goes, well, we just want to share with you the importance of being prepared for the end. And he said, you know, all these natural disasters that we've experienced in our country lately, we hear the message coming from our leaders, you need to be prepared for these things. Well, we also need to be prepared for the end when God comes back. Well, right then I interrupted him and I said, I am prepared because I have faith in Jesus who is my God and my Savior. Because of what he's done for me, I know I'm saved. He goes, oh, no, 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 that's not right. And he went on to try to tell me what I need to do to be saved. And I went on and told him how it's faith in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And without knowing him, we can't get to the Father. Well, he didn't agree. He said, well, we all have our different viewpoints. There are all sorts of different religions, but we'll all get there. Just be prepared. With knowing and trusting what God's will is for us in Jesus. But I can't know that on my own. But God has given us that gift of faith in Jesus. And with that faith also comes that blessing of hope. I know sometimes life in this world seems kind of hopeless. With all the troubles that we see going on around us, maybe all the troubles we have in our own life. But the Apostle Paul said, if we have hope only for this life, then we are to be pitied amongst all people because our hope goes beyond this life. It goes to eternal life. Have you ever known anybody who has heard the message of salvation but didn't believe it? How sad. But do you know that that could also happen to us? You know how doubts sometimes come in about what's going on in my life? What's God doing? There are questions. Is this really right? Maybe this is wrong. Maybe there's a different view of it. Well, those doubts and those questions can destroy faith. They're going to happen. They're going to come up. So what do we do? Just trust. Just trust what God says in his word. Trust what he reveals to us. Hold on to that, and there you have your hope. Lay aside the doubts, push aside those questions, just trust. What a wonderful gift faith from God is. And that's why we say, let's say it, to God alone be the glory because of the faith he gave us. And how do we get that faith? 
We simply listen to the scriptures because there God reveals his will for us. Paul points that out. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, and here it is, to the praise of his glory. The first part of Luther's career, verse, uh, years 1515 to 1520, he was immersed in the scriptures, studying it and teaching it. And here's what he discovered. As he studied the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, he saw that beautiful phrase, the righteous person will live by his faith. And then he saw that same thing repeated in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians as Paul is teaching us about salvation. And that's when he said, that's when the gates of heaven were opened to me. When he saw that it was just by faith in God that we are seen as righteous in his sight. See what the key was? It was to be in the word, to hear it and to believe it. And that became his fire, his fuel for everything that went on after that. The word, the word. He said, my conscience is bound to it. Here I stand. And here we stand too. To take that same word, to teach it and to confess it. In the early years of the Reformation, from let's say 1520 on through the end, through the 1540s, Luther was preaching about four to seven sermons a week. Almost every morning he was teaching his children the truths of God from the catechism. And he'd invite the kids from the community to come too. And then he would spend his time teaching in the university to prepare pastors and teachers and missionaries. And finally in his own life, as his health turned bad, as he was going through sufferings, and on his deathbed, he simply turned to the scriptures. You see, it's all in the word. And that's what we hold to as well. We can think of all sorts of wonderful events during that Reformation, but the capstone was probably the dedication of that church. As Luther stood in that beautiful building, he looked around and he said, we can spare all of this. We can spare everything except the word. My friends, let us treasure the word. Let's hear it. Let's let it live in our hearts. Let's live by it. And let us tell it to others, to the children, to our family and friends, to the people in our community, to the people throughout this world, because we all need it. And we have it. Therefore, we say, whoops, there we go. Let's say it together. Thank God we have the word. Amen.